0: when I was um, a child growing up and my parents were Christians, we got in church and uh, singing hymns, singing songs with your mum and dad at church. Uh, my dad always made me hold the hymn book and uh, whilst he would blast out some really massive bass line into my right eardrum, nearly piercing it, you know, sort of. On Christ the solid rock, he always shouted these You know, Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, son. You know, it was kind of pretty uh, forceful. Sharing a hymn book, uh, I was doing it the other day actually with my boys. We were in church; they couldn't see the screens, and there I was holding the sheet, booming bass lines into their ears. And sharing a hymn book is one of those amazing things. Uh, Singing hymns together, songs together, it unites us. Music helps us in that, of course it does, because music unites by the, the music itself, the resonance of it, and doing it corporately, but most importantly, because it unites us in our thinking. The words unite us. And as we sing in church, we sing together truths that remind us of God's love, is His faithfulness and His kindness towards us. We sing to God, of course we do, but we also sing to each other to encourage one another. We have in our hands right now open a hymn book, a song book. And the melody of the tune of this hymn, we don't know that. It's been lost and it shows, therefore, that it's less important than the words. But we have the words here of the writer of a hymn. And I, I suppose, just picture it in your mind, he's simply leaning over. And the hymn book is open like my dad was with me. And he's encouraging you to sing. We're beginning this new series in the book of Psalms. And uh, this is a collection of songs that brilliantly articulate the nature of God and his work amongst us. And, uh, but perhaps the Psalms, more than anything else, uniquely I think, they ha- their feature is that they, they have the ability to... Express our hearts, our souls. John Calvin, the great reformer of 16th century, wants to describe them as the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And whether it is joy or pain that you feel right now, whether you want to laugh or just simply curl up in a corner and cry your eyes out, there's a psalm for you. And the Psalms, what they do is they allow you to express those feelings that you have, that thinking that you have, and they refine it, and they redefine it, and they bring you to to think and to feel in a way that God longs you to think and feel the book is full of 150 psalms. It's divided into five books. I think you're going to see them there and how they're divided. And, and they're varied collections, both in the terms of the author and, and also in content as well. Last summer, we looked at uh, book one. We did seven psalms out of book one. This summer, starting this week, we're going to look at seven um, in book two. You'll see where they are. And um, we're going to do two this week, one this week. Well, I'll explain what I mean by that. We're doing one next week as well. And then we're going to do five later on in the summer. And then next year, next summer, we'll do another five, another seven from book three. And by 2015, I'll have finished this series. But there we go. So all the Psalms in book one, all the Psalms in book one are authored by David, except two. Psalm 10, Psalm 33. And, and you can see that. In what is called the superscription. You look at that, it's really verse naught in your Bibles. And in Psalm 42, you see it there for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. You see that there? That's called the superscription. And essentially, it's a subtitle that begins each psalm. Now, the subtitles that you see elsewhere in your Bibles, if you turn wherever you want, you'll see that the, they are written, not as scripture, but they are written by the translation team. And don't get me wrong, they're really helpful. They divide up passages helpfully. They point us in the right direction, but they are not scripture. They are not the Bible. Here, the superscriptions—they are—they were in the original uh, trans- uh, in the original documents. And what they do is they provide us really helpful—they uh, provide us with really helpful context, background, understanding of who the writer is and the type of Psalm they are. They provide context, really. David is the writer of a, we think sort 73, 75 of the 150 psalms in the whole of the collection in 150. But other authors include the Sons of Korah. We see that down here in the superscription of Psalm 42, the Sons of Korah. Other authors include Asaph, um, Solomon, Moses even is attributed to one, one of the psalms. But there are a few where the author is just unknown. But I think the really critical thing here, just a broad picture of psalms, The critical thing is that Jesus recognised this body, this collection of psalms. Therefore the 150 that we know are, if you like, authorised, commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a recognised collection by his time. The psalm, a psalm is literally in the Greek, a psalm means psalm. Okay, so there is 150 psalms. But that's a translation really from the Greek, which is tele, oh, I never did Greek, but telolim, which basically means praises. And, but that's really describing the function of the psalms. They are there for us to praise God. So we come to Psalm book 2. That is 42 to 72. Now just think back. We looked at the end of Psalm, the book one there, in chapter 41, last summer, and it, Somewhat ends with lament it is a difficult time for the people of god there's a plea for god for deliverance from suffering and torment but interspersed with all of that is hope and hope in god alone and here is where we begin psalm book two there are songs that long for restoration both corporately And individually, so we get to Psalm forty-two and forty-three. What we're looking at uh, tonight. Now they've always been placed. Bring down the main one, there. Everything's off. That's me. That's my fault. Back on. Brilliant. Let's go back. Psalm forty-two. Psalm forty-three. They're placed together. And firstly, because there is no superscription, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 43, there's an obvious kind of jump between the two. No instruction, which assumes kind of a continuation from Psalm 42. But secondly, they've always been placed together for the obvious reason. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 42, look at verse 11. They're the same, they're identical. Then look at Psalm 43, verse 5, and you'll see that is identical to those previous verses. Essentially, it's a repeated refrain. Let's go to the beginning, though, of the song. Look how it begins. For the director of music, obviously it's clearly pointing, it's a song. But then it says, a mascal. Now, scholars aren't really clear on what a mascal is, but many think it's not necessarily the form of music or the genre of music, whether it was jazz, but that didn't, you know what I mean. Um, it's more a kind of a comment on the, if you like, the quality or the and it's evaluation of the music. Simply, this is saying a mascal is like a classic, or if you're into jazz, it's a standard. Or if you're into rock, it's an anthem. You know what I mean? It's a stadium anthem. You know the kind of thing I mean. Uh, I guess when the you know The sons of Korah, you know, they turned and, um, sorry, the people of God, they turned to Psalm 42 and they saw Maskell. They thought something like the crowd at Glastonbury when Coldplay step on stage and begin, you know, Viva La Vida playing those, uh, what is it? Da-da-da-da-da, you know, and the crowds go wild with those, you know, kind of three notes of, this is awesome, it's a Maskell, wow. Now, if you Google Sons of Korah, which I recommend you do for comedy's sake, you'll get pictures like this. There are a number of bands which have kind of adopted the name, most of them in the soft rock genre. (laughs) Um, And um, what they do is they generally play the songs of Korah, which we see in Psalms, and they put new tunes to them. But the songs of Korah are mentioned here in the superscription of uh, Psalm 42 because they're actually the full-time musicians who worked in the temple uh, of the time Korah himself, mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, he was a Levitical musician. Basically, he served the Levitical priest within the temple as a full-time musician. And his son seemed to have taken on that kind of role as well. That is, they had this amazing privilege, as some of you will hear know, that amazing privilege of leading God's people to sing his praises. And most agree this basically puts, with that comment there, this puts this psalm contextually, historically into that kind of period of either God's people are still in exile just, or they just returned from exile. So we're talking about 550 to 500 BC. Now, just a bit of context there. God's people were taken from Judah, Jerusalem, and placed under captivity when the Babylonians swept in and sacked Jerusalem. 570, 80, help me, historians. Um, after that, the fall of Babylon came when the Persians swept in with the great king, um, King Cyrus. And when he came into Babylon, he said, God's people, you can now go back. He even gave them finance in order to restore Jerusalem to its former glory under Nehemiah's leadership and under the teaching of Ezra. Now that is the context nationally, but you'll see within this psalm, it doesn't really speak of national things as other psalms do. It is very much more personal, isn't it? It is a masque, yes. It is a song of the sons of Korah, yes. But it stands out not as a great song of joy of the, the people of God as a whole, but a personal cry to God. And the emphasis is not just on utter dependence for God for life, and of course he provides that. It is speaking of a joy and a pleasure of being close in good relationship with God that the psalmist seems to be missing and he longs to restore. So I guess just to put it back to that initial illustration, the sons of Korah are opening their hymn book and they're saying, you can sing along. We don't know the tune, the masculine has, hasn't been preserved, but if you were to guess a modern-day equivalent, this would be some kind of melancholic jazz, wouldn't it? This is, this is, it's pretty sad at times. Look at the repeated refrain. I mentioned it, verse 5, verse 11 in, verse, in chapter 42. It's like the modern-day chorus of some of the songs that we sing. See, the main thrust comes through that refrain, and you see it. It's a question of self examination. To what? To the downcast soul. The downcast soul. Look at the verse. Let's read it together. Why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. As I said, this is the refrain. And it allows us an insight into the heart and the mind of this writer. But in reality, what does that look like? I mean, there's no point us sharing this song with the son of Karar, is there? If, we, if none of us ever experienced this, if this was completely alien. So what are the symptoms of the downcast soul? We're going to turn to those now. First point on your sheet. Look at verse 1. Let's look at some of the symptoms. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. It's a funny picture, isn't it? A picture is a, a, a deer panting desperately for water. Now, I don't think deers are particularly stupid animals. I think they prance around plains and all that kind of stuff. But, but they know where the water is and they head there pretty much in a routine. But the picture here is saying that they head off to the nearest brook, the nearest river, the nearest stream, and they find it dry. And the psalmist is using this image to say to you, you may feel like this deer. Uh, That is, you come to God and he's just a dry river. And it's kind of clarified. Look down at verse 2, you get the idea there. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? I think he's got a kind of personal sense here that God has just gone. That he's distant, that he's become removed in his life. Now he still knows that God is God. Do you remember back when we were looking at Ruth in chapter 1 there? When Naomi enters back into Bethlehem, she calls herself Mara because everything is so bitter and terrible. You know, but there's no doubt in her mind that God is still God. Same here. But literally the psalmist is saying that he feels like he's lost the face of God. He seems to have lost any sense of personal relationship with God. Where can I go to meet with God, he says. So what is this? I guess most of us, if not all of us, have felt this at times in our relationship with God. It is that kind of spiritual dryness, a numbness in our relationship with God that once sparkled with joy, but now it just seems dry. Now, I found this really interesting when I was reading it, because I bet a few of us will have made judgments already about the character of this psalm. Uh, If we were sharing a hymn book with one of the sons of Korah, and, uh, you know, we started singing, we got to, you know, kind of verse two, as we've just done, I guess like me, some of you have been looking up at him going, so what have you done then? Why are you feeling so guilty? You know, why have you seemed so dry with God? What have you done to, to make this situation happen? Did you think like that? Why is he feel, feeling so guilty about this? And that is the really interesting thing about this psalm. The spiritual dryness is not related to what he is, to his guilt at all. You know, Psalmist has done seemingly nothing catastrophically wrong. If not, it will be there. You know, if you, it's not like Psalm fifty-one, and we're going to look at that later on in the summer, where David, you know, acknowledges and confesses his guilt before God because he's run off and slept with Bathsheba and so on and done some terrible, terrible things. You know, the disruption in David's relationship, the lack of joy that he 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 was feeling, was due to him. Here we see that the spiritual dryness, the downcast and disturbed soul, is just someone who's living his life and suddenly finds himself just panting for God. He seems just so distant. The joy is gone and he's done nothing catastrophically wrong. Now, I think there are two problems I face when we... I think we're all faced when we read this psalm. Firstly... I don't think any of us like to admit that we're this dear. I, I, I just think we never like to admit, to admit, do we, to others that we feel distant from God because the assumption will be people will think badly of us and they may even judge us. And secondly, we, we assume that because you know, spiritual drives this, the assumption we make, as i made, is that it's only for those who actively rebelled against God. What have you done? to get into this situation. And therefore, because of those two reasons, I'm I'm concerned in myself that when spiritual dryness does come, I think I can be very susceptible to it and and unprepared for it because I don't know why it has come. And whether you're a new Christian or, or someone who's trusted Christ for years, none of us, the point is here, none of us are immune to this, to spiritual drought, to feeling miles away from God. Young Christians, I, I, they're great to have around because they're so infectious. You know, you, when you first become a Christian, you, you realise how, you know, your life was without Christ. And now you realise the joy of your salvation. Salvation, You want to run around and tell everyone you're excited, brimming full of, you know, enthusiasm. And it's infectious, but too often something happens in life. And that person can begin to feel very far from God. Spiritually dry, as we see here. And if you're not prepared for it, you can begin to doubt See, I think this will affect us all at some time, if it hasn't already. Drought happens, and if we don't know how to deal with it, we may find ourselves making the situation worse. Because I guess, for many of us, the problem is we don't see the problem coming. It's like, I'm I'm always doing this. Uh, It's like when you're walking down a pavement, trying to catch a train, and you're trying to text someone at the same time. Have you ever done that? I, I find myself, like... You know there's a lamppost somewhere soon, uh, but you've got to get this text off before you go underground or something like that. And, and suddenly, you know, it's all a bit too late. You've hit your shoulder onto it and you've fallen into a puddle. I'm thinking of recent experiences for myself. And by the time you've picked yourself up and brushed yourself up and tried to look cool in front of all the crowd that's watching and laughing at you, and, you know, by the time you've just missed the train, we're not alert. We miss the fact that danger is approaching when we could have just taken a cheeky sidestep, you know, missed a few seconds, and averted disaster and ruining our trousers. And, and you know, a few seconds lost, but we actually catch the train in the end. We have to know, you see, what we're looking for. We've got to be alert to what is coming toward us. And spiritual dryness will come. And we need to be alert. And we need to be ready. And we will be more alert knowing the symptoms as we've seen some of them. But I think it's also very helpful to see the causes of being downcast. And that's what we're going to turn to now. The causes. And I think there are quite a few here in the psalm. I'm just going to point us to a few. Firstly, notice how the psalmist seems to have taken himself, firstly, away. Away from the community of God. That is, I think, as we would describe, the church. The gathering of God's people in the new covenant. Look at verse 2. Where? Where? Sorry, when can I go and meet with God? Then verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, and it goes on, among the festive throng. Now it seems, we see from verse six, that he's up in Jordan now, among the Hermon mountains and in the region of Mount Mizar, wherever that is. And we don't know why he's there, do we? It's not, it's not mentioned But notice, he is now in a place where he cannot sing with God's people. Where he cannot read the Bible with God's people. Where he cannot pray with God's people. Essentially, he is on his own, spiritually. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And hence why the writer, you'll note well in Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament, encourages the, the, re, uh, the listeners of that, of that letter to not give up meeting together. Because coming together encourages not only yourself, but also the other part of uh, the church. Of course we can pray on our own. Of course we can read the Bible on our own. Of course we can even sing songs on our own. That may sound pretty good in some, but it, others maybe not and they are all good things but never underestimate the necessity of those corporate disciplines of our faith look what they lead to if you ignore them seems pretty miserable here doesn't it and I think it's one of the great weaknesses of our culture in which we live in. Uh, sadly, it's seeping into the church all too often. That individualistic thinking and living uh, and it isolates people and it makes people feel vulnerable both in, in relationships but also in terms of the church as well. How can you stay faithful on your own? Of course you can. It makes it so much more difficult. Likewise, if you you can actually be like this man um, you know, out, up in Mount Mazar, but and still come to church. I see this so often. You, know, you come for your little bit of fix of, of teaching, of, you know, come to hear some prayers, come to hear a bit of singing, kind of join in, but you never engage either with the people or what is going on in church. and uh, You'll not get away with it. London is a constantly changing society. And if you're not actively engaged in church and the people of church, you will find yourself very, very alone amongst a body of people. Because two or three years down the line, those people you may have one time engaged with and become accountable to and prayed with and and really got involved with, they're probably all gone. A church in London, you need to constantly engage and engage and engage with the people who are ever-changing. Keeping the community of God. Second cause of spiritual dryness, I think it's just the disillusionment in life. Look at verse three. Men say to me all day long, where is your God? Now we don't know what's going on, but something big is going on in his life. And, And people are looking in and they are questioning his circumstances. They seem so tough. And they're asking, you know, kind of questions like, why is this? Thing that you're going through, why is it happening to you if there's such a God? And you hear it in the psalmist himself. Look at verse 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, and my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? It seems in some way that his life has fallen apart. There's oppression, there's suffering. At one time he was close, both to God. And the people of God and now he is oppressed and his response is to feel downcast. The third reason he's downcast I think is the deprivation that he is facing. And it's in lots of ways. Very quickly look at um, verse 5. In terms of uh, kind of leadership first he used to lead a procession to the house of God. That is I guess he had some kind of prominent position within God's people. Leading them in an important ministry. But now he finds himself completely on his own. That is hard. But the psalmist is actually being deprived from all sorts of perspectives. Look at verse 3 again. It's pretty harrowing. My tears have been my food day and night. So, we gather from that that this man, if he's crying all day and night, is neither sleeping, because he's crying, and he's not eating either. He's exhibiting, of course, signs of clinical depression or melancholy, as they used to say in the old days. But most scholars agree that this isn't the main issue here or cause. Of the spiritual dryness. But it shouldn't be overlooked. Too often I think Christians. uh, We're very guilty of this. We isolate the physical. From the spiritual. Which is odd. Considering God created us as both. I know that. How I look and feel physically. Will affect me spiritually. And of course vice versa. And I guess that's true for many of us. We can't ignore that we are physical beings and therefore we should have a much more balanced approach to ourselves as we have been created to reflect the way that we have been created physically and spiritually. Some people, I guess, reduce everything to that kind of physical sense. So if you are downcast and feeling a little bit low, they'll kind of say, oh, come on, just go and take some pills. Go and see the doctor and get it sorted. Yeah, off you go. Some people, sadly many Christians and kind of traditional cultures, reduce everything to kind of a moral stance, don't they? So they say, you know, if you approach them and you say, I'm feeling a bit downcast at the moment, I'm feeling a bit, you know, kind of spiritually low, they'll say, sort your life out, stop whining. Maybe that's just me that gets that, but maybe you heard it as well. And some people essentially, in our, especially in our culture, reduce everything to a kind of just an emotional level, don't they? And you might approach them and say, I'm feeling a bit downcast, you know, a bit spiritually dry at the moment. And they say, oh, that's great. I'll listen to you. I'll accept you. I'll support you through that. But that's kind of no help at all, really. It's just kind of placating the situation. The Bible shows us that none of us are that simple, Really. We are physical, yes. We are emotional, yes. We are spiritual, yes, we are. And so we're emotional, so we need friends. We've been created to be part of a community, to have friends, to support us, and so on. We are physical, we have a physical aspect to our life, so we need rest. Some of us just need better sleep patterns. Some of us just need to eat more regularly, not just stuff ourselves and then just live off a piece of toast for three days. You know... <laughs> Some of us, when we get ill, we need to stop being so stubborn and actually go and see the doctor. I think the last time I went to see the doctor, blokes do this all the time, I just said, yeah, I've got five things today. That was about five years ago, but you know you know how it goes. Some of us just need to be stopped being so stubborn. We're physical beings. Sometimes we do need medicine. But we also have this spiritual side to our lives. And for that, what do we need? We don't need someone to just placate us and say... I understand, I, 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 I'll support you. No, for our spiritual side we need one thing, we need truth, we need truth. The great uh, preacher who was also a doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a whole book on these two chapters, a very helpful book, and he said Christians should be the least reductionistic of all people, that is to look at all the elements, all the aspects of our lives and our hearts, Let's move on. What about the remedy to our downcast soul? Lastly now, the remedy. Notice the balance here that he doesn't just focus on his emotions. And likewise, he just doesn't also focus on the spiritual side of things as well. He listens to himself. He figures out stuff out. But he isn't afraid of getting tough and speaking that truth to himself. First, I've got four things very quickly here. Firstly, I think he pours out his soul. It's obviously in the passage. Look at verse four. There, that is where it's specifically. He pours out his soul. This is the remedy for our spiritual dryness. But it is the whole psalm, isn't it? It's a pouring out of himself toward God. He doesn't feel God anymore when he prays, when he sings, when he reads his Bible, but he doesn't ignore that fact. What does he do? What's the remedy? He prays and he sings. He does the very thing that is making you feel dry. just keeps doing it. He pours out his soul. And if you find yourself spiritually dry, the downcast soul in you, talk to God. If it helps you, if you're one of those people that loves writing things down, get yourself a journal. Write things down. But express how you know, how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the situation. Tell God that you miss him. The last thing you should do is a deer panting for streams of water Is run away from the source of the water. Secondly, he asked himself questions. The refrain, verse 5, verse 11, and verse 5 of chapter 43 why are you downcast? He's asking it to himself. Overall, in this psalm, these two psalms, he asked himself 11 questions. In an age where we like to pass blame for everything in our lives to someone else, You know, this is pretty radical, isn't it? He's saying, look within. See that you might be accountable for what is going on a little bit. Ask yourself some searching questions. Look for more information. That is what the psalmist is doing. Why am I downcast? I need to know more about that. He hasn't done anything exceptionally wrong. We can see that in the psalm. But it seems he's probably put his hope in something other than God as we see him realigning his hope. Look what he says in that, in that refrain. Put your, uh, sorry, Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him. He's saying do it. I need to put my hope in something else. The searching questions kind of form a, a kind of movement in his soul. See, being downcast always exposes in us those vain hopes that we put in our lives, in our hearts. So we need to ask ourselves tough questions and begin to realign our hopes so they are firmly in God and God alone. Thirdly, he remembers the love of God. Look at verse 6. I will remember, he says. And I guess at that point he is recalling all that God has done throughout salvation history. You can think of the great exodus and all the things of God's work with his people. But I guess he's also looking at his own life and seeing how God has worked in and through him, despite him. All the time he's looking to God's faithfulness and love. But he also sings to himself. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me. There are a few hymns. Great old hymns that my dad used to pierce my eardrums with. That I love and they help me remember God's goodness and his love to me. And in the darkness of night, I don't think there is anything better to have at your disposal. Fourthly, he preaches to his heart. So he's listened to his heart. He's kind of searched his heart with all these kind of questions. Remember God's love, but there needs to be more. Sometimes you just need to get tough and that kind of moralistic snap out of it is just not enough. You need to preach to your heart. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. You need to get under your skin and you know how to do that. And you need to tell yourself, and you need to force yourself to put your hope in God when you are drowning in the waterfalls of life as He is in Psalm 42. My heart is so stubborn that sometimes I literally need to say to my my feelings and my wants and my desires, shut up. Don't be so stupid. So the remedy, he pours out his soul, he asks himself some questions, he remembers the love of God and he preaches to himself. Notice the realistic outcome though. In each of the refrains, verse 5, verse 11, verse 5 again. See, he doesn't say, I will praise him. Because that's just a kind of denial of reality, isn't it? He doesn't say, I will never praise him. Because that's just miserable and despondent. He says, for I will yet praise him, doesn't it? And he sees a change in his attitude. Look at chapter 43, verse 4. There's realism here. It says, there I will go, to God. My joy and my delight. I will praise you. He has a trajectory and he's heading that way. So let's conclude. The sons of Korah are leaning over and their their hymn book is open. And we have the privilege of singing this song with them. And if you find yourself downcast right now, spiritually dry then this should bring hope a little bit of light some water to quench your thirst and if you're not downcast right now praise the Lord but be prepared but you know when you look down at this hymn book look at the hand that's holding it and look at the wrist of the one that's holding the hymn book Because as you sing this song, you should see that the one who's singing this song with you right now is the one who was completely forgotten by God. The one who was utterly forsaken so that you and I don't have to be. There's a scar on the man's wrist who's holding the book now because he was nailed to a cross and his name is Jesus Christ. Remember his cry on the cross? John's Gospel, I am thirsty. And he was, physically but also spiritually. Jesus Christ has tasted spiritual dryness so that we do not have to for the whole of our lives. And he said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The one holding the hymn book was crucified, forsaken, knew all spiritual dryness and we do not have to. Remember him, sing with him, preach yourself to, preach him to yourself in the quiet of night and to your downcast souls sing of him. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us here who will want to sing this song tonight, for we feel like that dear, thirsty for God. We, we, we've lost that intimacy, that joy and relationship with God. For those of us who feel that right now, may we hear the words of this psalm. And like the psalmist pour out our soul and put our hope in you and you alone, recognising that you are our saviour, that you are our God. And for those of us who are not feeling like this right now, may this be a warning, a helpful reminder that one day we may be facing this and there is a remedy. And that is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has felt this all for us in our place on the cross. In him we pray. Amen.